0: Providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real time market analyses.
1: Today, we have the most timely topic of all healthcare and COVID vaccine development. It's an honor and pleasure to have UC Health CEO Elizabeth Concordia join me on the webcast today. And we will hear Liz's insights into how health systems across the country are currently fighting the pandemic, saving lives, and planning for the rollout of the vaccine. Elizabeth Concordia is the president and CEO of UC Health based in Aurora, Colorado. UC Health has been ranked a top 100 hospital by Thomson Reuters, one of America's top hospitals by U.S. News & World Report, and received level one trauma center status in 2018. Prior to joining UC Health, Liz was the first female CEO of the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center Presbyterian Shadyside Hospital. Liz holds a BA from Duke University and a master's in hospital administration from Johns Hopkins. Liz, when you heard that the Pfizer vaccine needed to be stored at negative 90 degrees Fahrenheit, do you have a refrigeration capability to hold something like that, or did you have to turn out and order, order one immediately?
0: So we do have refrigeration capability, but the question is, do we have enough, and did we have enough freezers? So we did order more freezers.
1: But Liz, a recent Pew Research Center poll found that Back in May, 72% of Americans said that they'd get the vaccine, and that number fell to 51% by September. Are you concerned that Americans won't actually take this vaccine?
0: I think there is some concern. I also think that the efficacy is is very promising. It's not 60%, it's not 50%, but in the 90s. And I also think that as more people get vaccinated and people see that there's um, a positive outcome from that, those doubters, if you will. Um, will step up and be more inclined to get the vaccination. There will always be some that uh, that will not.
1: So Liz, when you think about the vaccine arriving, there are two things that come to mind. First of all, one shot, two shot, storage at 90 degrees, a negative 90 degrees, or in a normal refrigerator. And you've also got the other vaccines Talk for a moment about the complexity as it relates to just administering it. And then I want to hear you talk about how are you going to create your list of who gets it first?
0: Right. So, you know, the challenge becomes uh, we, we saw a little bit of this and we were looking for PPE and the, and the like at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. And the complexities are knowing how much you're going to get. When are you going to get these doses? How do you identify the individuals? Every state has identified their first, second, third, fourth, and fifth tier of how they would get distributed. The challenge is, at the beginning, if you just look at the first tier of healthcare workers, with a limited supply, you're not going to get enough for everybody in that first tier first. So I'm cautiously optimistic that when we look to inoculate all of our healthcare workers, it will give an opportunity for us to work with the distributors with regard to how do we actually appropriately take them in how are they delivered in pallets what freezers do they need to be in how do we look to then run these if you will drive through vaccination centers which will then help identify how do we actually do this to the broader community when you look at the high risk population and how do you get out to the churches and the communities to uh, to vaccinate that it will be a, a logistical challenge
1: okay. Liz let's um let's dive right into their thir- 73,000 COVID-19 patients in hospitals across the country today, we hadn't crossed 60,000 prior to November 10th uh, since the onset of the pandemic. And there are about 14,313 people who are in ICUs across the country today. How Can you give us a sense how CU Health is dealing with this inflow of patients and how you're dealing with just massive surge in the number of cases across the country?
0: Sure, so we have seen as many other hospitals and systems across the country, a significant increase. Just from a perspective, we have about 360 COVID patients in our hospital today. A month ago, we had 93 and two months ago in September, on September 18th, we had 50. So when you look at the ramp up, um, it's been significant. We have done a lot of work since April and planning with the expectation that there might be another surge because we, we knew that the weather was gonna change and we thought that there would be a surge. Certainly no one has predicted, and the modeling is not predicted to the degree of the surge that we have and how much longer it's going to go. There are a lot of good news items though. Compared to April, we've got many fewer patients on ventilators. In April, every single patient that was in our ICU was, in a ventil- was on a ventilator. That's not the case today. We've had a lot of success and progress in treating these patients with the remdesivir, with steroids, with other components. So as hospitals across the country have prepared for this ramp up, we certainly don't want the numbers that we have. We have made and learned a lot since April. So we've increased our staffing, expected to surge. Again, the treatment, the length of stay of patients is dropped by over 50% from April. So again, if the patient's in the hospital longer, I mean, a lot shorter then you can see more patients. we um, are not in the same situation that we were in in April. And any issues
1: as it relates to either PPP supplies or remdesivir from a kind of a just from a the tools to fight it? I want to talk about the people in a second. But from yeah, a tool so standpoint, we, yeah,
0: we've come we've come a long way. The as the numbers continue to grow and you're burning through a lot of your um, your supplies, there may be some challenges in the future. But we're feeling pretty good right now. We're not battling PPE. All of our staff have the equipment that they, that they need. The one challenge that we do have is testing is very important and the reagents that we need to run our lab machines are pretty much just in time and we don't always get exactly the amount that we need. So that's the critical source and limitation right now.
1: How is it, Liz, that we're still this far into this, and we're still having testing issues. I would I would have thought um, that by now, the private sector would have met that challenge and seen the opportunity to get rapid testing developed and deployed more quickly. Why is it that it's still difficult to get testing today?
0: Well, I, I think there are two answers. One is when you go from nothing to trying to test millions and millions of people, you've got uh, just a scaling challenge, but the reagents that you need to test that from a supply chain perspective um, have been more of a challenge than they anticipated in in ramping up. And there are also different types of tests. So there are the rapid tests that are really short, that are, that are short turnaround. And then there are also tests, for example, that the colleges are using um, that are m- that don't have the same specificity that you need in a hospital where you're making decisions to treat a patient off of the COVID piece. So I think from where we were in April to where we are today, we've come a long way. We just still have you know these challenges with the supply chain. Can't answer exactly why that's the case. But when you go from zero to tens of millions, you've got some challenges, which is what's going to happen with the distribution of the vaccine as well.
1: And how's your employee base? any issues on retaining or hiring nurses, technicians, staff, and doctors?
0: So our staff's fatigued we're lucky here at UC health we've a phenomenal group of individuals, and we never laid anyone or furloughed anyone throughout the whole piece. so I think they're pretty committed to our organization. There is a national shortage of ICU nurses and med surge nurses so to your point, from a business perspective, you've got lots of agencies that are coming in and trying to pick off the staff to go to other areas and the salaries that they're garnering are excessive and significant. So I think there's, there's a staffing challenge and then there's also the fatigue. They're tired from April, now we're into November. And how much longer is the surge gonna go? I think the promising news that you heard from Bob is there is an end in sight because with, an, with the vaccination, we will be able to have a solution and how do we actually decrease the number of COVID patients we have in our hospitals. So I do think some positive news is refreshing for our staff to hear.
1: Before we turn back to the vaccine, you talked about the business. Um, Hospitals all took a big hit when we shut down our economy back in April and May, uh, where nobody was going to the hospital for anything other than urgent care. Have the, if you will, normal operations of your hospital gotten back up and going? And then I'm going to follow that up with a question as it relates to the number of procedures and analyses that haven't been done in 2020 that could lead to a increased surge in 2021. But talk for a moment about, is your hospital back to normal operations today as it relates to things other than COVID?
0: Right. So we were back in the September timeframe, back up to about 98%, between 96 and 98% of where we were from an outpatient and inpatient perspective. We now have had to dial back some of the non-emergent cases to be able to handle uh, all of the COVID cases. So pretty much we were back and patients were coming back to get the care that they needed. And that is a real challenge. Delaying transplants, delaying cancer surgeries and things like that are really problematic. And from a behavioral health perspective, um, we've seen significant issues with our uh, patient population.
1: And I'm assuming because I use it with you all, telemedicine has to a great degree changed the way that your doctors are interfacing with their clients. I have done a number of telemedicine visits with uh, my GP and more, and it's been fantastic that the two of us can kind of go back and forth and I can ask her a quick question without making a procedure, you know, an appointment and going in. Talk about that efficiency that you've gained and how that's changed your business model.
0: Sure. So we were fortunate that we were on one um, information system platform prior to this, so we could flip pretty quickly. But pre-COVID, we were doing about 400 televisits a day, and post-COVID, it's about 4,500 visits a day. Uh And so you've got your urgent care sort of televisits, but then the relationship you have with your physician and new visits is really where we saw the explosion. Our experience has been that our patients are satisfied with that option, it's better received and more appreciated for follow-up visits than the initial visit. Patients really like to have that first visit where they can establish a relationship with their physician, and that's their preference. So what we've seen when our numbers went down a little is they would be coming in for the first visit and were amenable to having a virtual visit for the second visit, Um, and now we're obviously moving back towards having that initial visit be a virtual visit as well. Not everything can be done virtually.
1: Have there there been any issues as it relates to reimbursement payments from insurers, as it relates to a consultation where in the past I used to have to go and see the doctor, so I walk into the office and you bill me ever X amount for going and seeing the doctor. Now I'm emailing back and forth. It's virtual. Are you billing the insurance company for that and getting reimbursements, or has that been a whole negotiation?
0: So it's been a mix. So the CARES Act allowed... um, virtual care to be billed at the same rate and with insurers um, that the physical visit was, but then every different person's plan may have a little bit of a different rule. But in general, um, during this emergency, if you will, timeframe, it's not forever, but we've been authorized and, and most of us are getting reimbursed for the virtual visits for commercial insurance.
1: So that seems to be one of the, if you will, to some degree, I don't want to say it's a positive outcome from the pandemic because nothing is good out of this, but we do seem to be seeing certain things like the development of these vaccines that are taking much, much shorter and have incredible promise for the future. Is there anything else as it relates to your business and the way that you're managing your business today that has been, if you will, the silver lining to such a challenging time?
0: So, I mean, I think there are certain things that we've said were. We've identified is we never go back so there are opportunities like you said for the virtual visits there also it's forced us to look at other components of for example orientation and how you train your staff how can you do that um, in more of a blended virtual and fixed environment so um, there certainly have been from that perspective as well as um, workflow of patients and how do you communicate with them can you text them and get them in and out of the the hospitals and the outpatient clinics to avoid the use of waiting rooms. So I think we've learned a lot from a, um, if you will, customer service and retail experience that will um, continue long after this pandemic is over.
1: So looping back to Operation Warp Speed for a second, you've obviously been in contact with the federal government as it relates to how this vaccine is going to be deployed across the country. Um, And from our previous discussion, it seems like this is going to be really challenging as it relates to sort of a prioritization of frontline workers, those most susceptible, how much vaccine you're going to get at what time, et cetera, et cetera. Talk for a moment just about that challenge and, and how you plan to work through it over the coming months.
0: So specifically, um, what we're doing is we're taking care of patients every day. And we've got another group that's literally focusing on how are we going to um, distribute the vaccine once it comes in. So the challenge that we have is that we don't know what we're getting and how we're getting um, the vaccine and when the distribution will occur. So what's happened is every state's identified their priority. So when we get our first batch, the first people that get it will be the frontline workers, those nurses that are working in the COVID units, the respiratory therapists that are taking care of these patients. But for example, when we get the vaccine, it's not mandatory. And so what we're doing proactively is, you had asked earlier how many people will get the vaccine. For starters, amongst healthcare workers, we're actually formulating a questionnaire to say to all of our employees, um, if the vaccine is available, will you take it? Then if they say yes, then the next question is, are you willing to take one? Are you willing to take the Moderna? Are you willing to take the Pfizer? Because we also need to recognize that when these vaccines come in, we wanna distribute them as efficiently as possible. So how do we identify even amongst our own population, which vaccine we're gonna get and who was willing to take it and how do we distribute it in a very time efficient manner. So if you think about the complexities of us not knowing what we're gonna get tomorrow or two days from now, um, and then if we only get 200 in our first batch, for example, do we give it to one clinician in every single one of our COVID ICUs or do we focus on one hospital first? So those are just some of the the logistics that are out there. I think that it's gonna be a challenge um, I'm cautiously optimistic for a couple of reasons. We have a history of vaccinating, you know, children with MMR and the like. We do have experience with flu vaccinations within our employee population. We require flu shots, so we know how to distribute amongst our own. And so, if we can perfect or learn the glitches as healthcare providers providing the vaccines to our own, hopefully there'll be a lot of learnings of how do we efficiently work with the federal government and the state agencies and public health agencies to distribute it. But it will require a coordination that heretofore uh, we have not seen.
1: I, I the, the idea that people are supposed to understand enough about the differences between a Moderna vaccine or a J and J vaccine and then sort of check the box for it is 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 unbelievable to me in just how much education needs to go into that. And I guess the other the other thing that I'm just sort of thinking about in my own mind is just, okay, I've gotten my first shot. I'm headed towards my second shot 21 days later. Am I still wearing a mask during that period of time? And then once I've gotten my second shot, am I still wearing a mask? Or the moment I've gotten my second shot, I'm done with this mask stuff and I'm back to business as usual.
0: So from a care perspective, we'll be wearing masks for a long time, shots or not. Um, I think that from a public health perspective, it's going to be, uh, very interesting to see, is there going to be federal direction that says after you've gotten the shot for the second time, this is the comfort level you should have, or is it going to be communicated by state and within the county with regard to what are the, what are the, re- the regulations? So I think there's a lot of unknowns there.
1: Very much so. And what about getting it to rural areas? You know, we talked about the difference between the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine and that you've got refrigeration capability in Denver. Um, What about in more rural communities that that UC Health uh, uh, serves?
0: So we've coordinated with the state. So we have a couple of rural hospitals. We actually are putting one of those um, high-tech freezers in one of our rural hospitals. And then I think the facilities that have those freezers um, will get the the Pfizer. I mean, that's again the question, Willie, is are we going to even be able to coordinate who gets what or is it just we're so anxious to get these out that we want to make sure from a distribution perspective that all the rural areas or anyone can can accept any vaccination that comes because we want to make sure we don't waste any doses. The health systems everywhere where I have worked, not just here in Colorado, we all feel an obligation to our rural hospitals and to partners. So we will coordinate and assist um, them in the distribution and, you know, couriering them and supplying them. And also, you know, the whole also concept is tracking who gets the vaccination. If they go to one place to get the first dose and they go to a second place to get the second dose, um, how do you track that these individuals have had it? And is there trust that we're getting a thousand shipments of this vaccine today that in another month, we're going to get another thousand to be able to give to the individuals that got the first dose.
1: And Liz, you're in on these conversations all the time. Is there any, you know, we've had plenty of people come on the Walker webcast who said we basically shut down our economy to try and essentially protect the elderly population uh, because they're the most vulnerable to this uh, virus. And that if you really look at it and its impact on the working population, it's not nearly as dangerous to the working population is to the elderly as you think about vaccine deployment is there any thought i mean i think everyone now says frontline workers and then the most vulnerable has there been any discussion that says no the people who actually ought to get the vaccine frontline workers first but then the working population so they can keep things going and then you get to the most vulnerable later or is that not is that just so sort of politically out of the realm if you will that everyone's like no we got to go to the most vulnerable to this thing first
0: i think that the expectation is that it goes to the most, most vulnerable first. Um, I do think that to your point, the challenge that we have is the schools not being open has been a total travesty for our children. And I'm fearful as many of my colleagues that we're going to see the impacts of this for years. We have a significant behavioral health issue as a result of this. And uh, we need to get the kids back to school. And I think part of the question then Willie is if the most vulnerable are vaccinated Are we then comfortable having the children go back to school because we know that if they get it until we get them fully vaccinated, the consequences are not nearly as challenging. So that's been, I think, the the mindset. We are very focused on trying to get kids back to school. Um, The episodes and the challenges that we also have and we've seen since the epidemic has started with domestic violence and abuse is very disheartening.
1: I want to I jump on that mental health issue in a second, but just on that thought, how do we get teachers classified as frontline workers?
0: I think that'll be uh, state by county by county. I will certainly be advocating from a public health perspective here that we need to get teachers vaccinated so that they're willing to go back to, to work.
1: And so on that, as it relates to what I would call the contagion effect of the COVID virus, other illnesses not being treated as early as they need to through diagnostic testing and, and through things like uh, radiation or chemo for, for cancer because people are staying away from care centers, um, as well as the, the mental health impact, as you just mentioned. What are you seeing along those lines? Are we, are we set up for both illness numbers as well as mortality rates in 2021 and 2022 that we've never seen before?
0: So I I think the positive is that with the masking and the different protection that we put in place, patients have been more comfortable coming back to healthcare facilities for care. So I think what we saw in April, May, and June is very different than what we have seen after that when you were asking how the volumes came back. So there certainly was a delay, but it has not been an eight-month delay in treatment. Will there be impact from later diagnoses? Absolutely, yes. And it will vary by region because some regions didn't have the surges that that others have had. And I think that no one has specifically projected what the impact uh, of those delays will be. We certainly know there was more patients came in to the hospitals in full cardiac arrest in full-blown sepsis as a result of ruptured appendix than ever before during the shutdown.
1: Fascinating. And on the mental health side of things, you're seeing increased incidents of that given lockdown and, and, and the lack of social interaction and, and domestic abuse and things of that nature? Yes,
0: absolutely. And also uh, challenges just in acting out of the patients towards our providers, just from the perspective of a patient is on a floor and has been, had some a behavioral health challenge because they've been isolated. Um, and so we've got more challenges. So the nurses and the clinicians are stressed. Enough in just caring for all these people, and a lot of the patients are also acting out as well. So it's a double whammy for uh, for them. And we uh, we're doing as much virtual behavioral health as as we can. Um, we've committed millions and millions of dollars to free virtual health for our employees and trying to reach out to the community. It is a, it is a challenge.
1: It's interesting as we head into this time of the holiday season when people are not spending time with family members and not traveling what people could potentially do to try and reach out to people in their community and and help with that issue to any degree. I'm I'm assuming that any help is very welcome, but I guess the question is how do you apply it and how do people actually make an effort and make, make an impact on this issue at such a critical time?
0: Yeah. I mean, and it can be as simple as loneliness is a huge challenge. And so even reaching out when you look at the elderly that have been isolated in these nursing homes, There's a lot that people can just do to reach out to people that they know are alone and engage them in conversation, uh, even on the telephone is as simple as that can be a valuable intervention.
1: So I have two final questions for you. The first one, when do you think I'll get the vaccine? So a middle aged, healthy person trying to keep on working. um, When does someone like like Willie Walker get the vaccine?
0: Can't answer that question, but I think that Moderna and Pfizer and you know the more vaccines that are approved, the more vaccines that we can that we can get on the market. Obviously, the sooner I think it'll be a while for people like you and I.
1: Should I set my sights on next June, uh, a year from now, or sometime in 2022? I mean, I'm just like expectation management is huge in all this stuff. I'm not going to hold you to it, but what's your thinking as you look at the? The amount it's going to go out, you've been involved with the deployment of the vaccines. What, where, where should I have myself
0: kind of focused on? I, I'm optimistic that, you know, the first six months of next year that we'll be able to have access to at least the first dose. Lo- love to hear
1: it. I'll, I'll, I'll take that optimism and run with it. Um, the final one is given this huge surge, Liz, in cases across the country and ICU units having record numbers of people, What's the breaking point where the healthcare system says no mass and that then forces governments to shut back down? I'm you know, a lot of people have said we're not going to go back into shutdown mode that we're going to figure out. There'll be pockets of outbreaks. But this thing has gotten to such a widespread number now. And it's not just isolated in New York City as it was, you know, in the, the greater metropolitan area there. It's all across the country. Is there is there something there where. You're looking at a number where you're going to pick up the phone and call Governor Polis and say to him, look, we we, we just can't handle it. You got to you got to tamp things down.
0: Ideally not. So we've got 90 hospitals across Colorado and we certainly have significant positivity rates, just under 20 percent. Our goal is to figure out how we can continue to handle the surge and not be on point for making a decision of whether it shuts down or not. Um, We are trying to be as as conservative as possible in making sure that we have all the supplies and the staff that we need. But we are uh, we're not looking forward to or have any expectation of calling the governor and making that kind of a request at this
1: point. Well, um, I first want to thank you for taking time to join me today. I second want to thank you for all that you and your team do to protect lives and to help all of us get through this exceedingly challenging um, pandemic and health crisis. Thanks for all you do every single day. And I'm just deeply appreciative of you joining me today.
0: Thank you. Have a good day.
1: Great to see you. Thanks everyone. See you next week.